Welcome to our GE podcast. I'm Valerie Arnold. I'm our co-head of North American Distribution at Pazina Investment Management. Pazina is a global deep value equity manager. We do one thing, value investing. We focus on our value discipline um, throughout the investment cycle, regardless of whether value is in favor or not. We have built a culture that allows us to do this through thick and thin, and we believe it is the best approach to take for our clients over the long term. We're here today to discuss GE. This is a global franchise that for the first time in our 25-year history, we are um, investing in. It is a top five position across our firm's portfolios that have large cap exposure. I'm here today with John Getz, our co-CIO. He has been with us since the beginning of the firm, and he's a portfolio manager on on all of our global and non-US strategies. Previously, he was our director of research, and he joined the firm in 1996 after a long career at Amico in the oil industry, and after spending many years living overseas in Asia and Europe. I'm also here with Dan Bapkis, who is a senior research analyst covering the industrial sector. And Dan joined our firm in 2016, and he is responsible for the research that we have done and the investment we have made in General Electric. John, can you discuss the firm's history with GE? Sure. Um, it's, it's really interesting when an icon like GE ends up being a research project for Bazzini Investment Management. Just to set the, set the frame for it, you know, we've always said since the beginning of the firm 25 years ago that we're trying to find good businesses selling at, at low prices. Some, sometimes I add ridiculously low prices. Uh, and, and what's interesting about GE is for decades, I would say, the stock was loved enough that it wouldn't be that interesting to us. So let me just explain first that uh, when you look at a company like GE, uh, we won't be buying it when it's loved. Uh, and the reason for that is we run a very disciplined quantitative screening process. What the screening process does is it looks at the entire universe of companies, whether that's in emerging markets, in Europe, or the United States. Uh, screening process works the same. Uh, our model looks at the history of the, of the company uh, and the history of the industry it, it's in, and basically by creating a naive estimate of future earnings power, uh, it keeps us disciplined and looking only at the cheapest quintile. So for, for decades, uh, since uh, just a little sidebar, since I live in Connecticut, I'm around many GE executives, and if the stock fell 20% uh, or so, they'd say, wow, you must be interested in GE now. And I'd say, well, well you don't know what inexpensive really looks like. Uh, and, and then spool forward, uh, a stock that at one time sold at $60 a share uh, hits our screens uh, in, in low double digits, $11, $12 a share. So this is pretty dramatic stuff that we get to see. Uh, one of the most loved and at one time the largest market cap in the world hits a Pazine investment screen. Now remember, uh, as we've said from the beginning, we want to find good businesses selling at low prices. And the only way that happens is something significant has entered the uh, situation of the business. So, so clearly it's typical that earnings have fallen dramatically uh, from the history. Uh, it's also typical that the company has moved from loved to unloved by the market. Uh, so by the time GE had hit the, hit the screens, uh, people had really existential uh, concerns you know, about the business. So 
the way this works is when a company hits a screen, uh, one of the portfolio managers identifies it as a project. Uh, in this case, when we look at the history of GE, we see a very healthy financial history, good balance sheet, etc. But in the last couple of years, as you probably know from the press, uh, GE's earnings have fallen precipitously uh, and in fact got incredibly scary to the market. So the first question we ask ourselves is, is there a reason to believe that the problems are, are permanent uh, or temporary? And, and one of the things that, that comes up in GE, just when you do some basic reading, is three of the pillars of the business in the history are still there. The GE medical business, the GE power systems business, which is big combined cycle gas turbines, and last but not least, the jet engine business uh, were all there inside the company. So you're asking yourself, wow, how the heck does this stock go from $60 a share to $10 a share? Uh, so when we see that, we initiate a project. In this case, since Dan Babkus covers industrials, we say to Dan, in two weeks, why don't you go away and identify what the issues are uh, that are causing all this pain, and then we'll try to make an attempt to understand those. So I think at this point, maybe what I should do is just turn it over to Dan and say, when we assigned him GE, you know, what was he looking at? Uh, why don't you go into, Dan, what, what, what you're looking at when you first saw this disaster uh, of a stock price chart? Sure. So it became a project assigned to me, as John mentioned, because of what our quant tool had picked up. So our quant tool had picked up very simplistically the fact that margins in the industrial portfolio overall were going down. So the history of GE would suggest that the industrial businesses generate a, a 15 to 16% margin on average historically. And in the 2017 to 2018 timeframe, margins were creeping down to uh, sub 10%. So our quant tool identified the fact that if you believe the margins go back up to where they'd been historically, the GE was starting to screen cheap enough for us to, to potentially make an investment. So the, the first part of the pro project was, number one, understanding what's going on in the business, why the margins are, are declining, and, and, and understanding what the key earnings drivers are. So you know, as John mentioned, you can really segment the industrial businesses into three key pillars. So one is the healthcare business, which is the medical imaging equipment, not controversially a pretty good and stable business, typically generates margins in the mid to high teens, not terribly cyclical relative to the rest of the portfolio. The other business is their aviation segment, where they're the market leader in jet engines. They make, they, they power two out of every three departures on earth. So very good business, uh, extremely high market share, very stable aftermarket earnings stream. And the last business is their power segment, which makes capital equipment for, for power generation. And the marquee product is really the gas turbine. Dan, can you tell us more about where GE started to run into problems? So what we determined when we first started doing the research is GE essentially had two major issues. So one was the power business had essentially collapsed. So to put that in perspective, this business was when I started looking at GE, it was supposed to generate in 2018 north of $7 billion of earnings and growing from there. The actual earnings it generated in 2018 was negative $800 million. So material collapse in, in, uh, in, the, in the earnings stream. And to keep in mind, this is, a, this is a business that's critically important to modern society. So GE tells you that one-third of the world's electricity is generated off of their equipment. So critical infrastructure business, very strong aftermarket stream that it oftentimes is contractual. So it's a little puzzling to us to understand how that business had generated such a large, a large earnings miss. The second problem is the balance sheet had been deteriorating. 
And that's a result of two particular issues. So number one is the earnings and cash flow hole from, from the power segments. The balance sheet had been built around an assumption that it was going to generate material positive earnings, not negative earnings. And the second problem, and this takes, takes me back to a little, little bit of history, was GE had exited GE Capital over, over the past few years. So four or five years ago, they announced this plan to pull capital out of GE Capital. A material portion of that was returned to the equity holder via dividends and share buybacks, and they simultaneously made a big bet on the power market. So they acquired, they acquired Alstom's power business and effectively materially increased their capacity in power systems right before demand for the, their marquee product, gas turbines, had collapsed. So the, the combination of declining earnings in, in the power segment, which is what our, our quant tool was identifying, that the overall company margins were going down, and a deteriorating balance sheet with a combination of less cash flow than you thought and a liability that hadn't been uncovered, that's what, what left GE in the position that it created a lot of fear and a potential valuation opportunity for us. Thanks, Dan. John, can you take us through the investment process that you use to research GE? Yeah, thanks, Valerie. The the uh, process we use to look at GE is the same process that we've executed since the inception of the firm. It begins with a screening tool to try to force us and discipline us to look only at the cheapest uh, stocks uh, in, in the universe. Uh, in this case, uh, this stock screened up in a couple of our universes, both the global universe that we research as well as the U.S. universe for large cap uh, companies. So it's the same process that we've implemented. It starts with a screening tool uh, and then ends with a deep dive of, of research into individual securities. John, how did you determine that these problems were actually analyzable? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, Val. You bring up a good point. Uh, when we run this screen, clearly we know that a lot of stock prices that have fallen uh, might not be interesting investments or they might be what people call value traps. So one of the things we're looking for in, in the two-week review is to figure out if we can figure it out. So when Dan came in, particularly the power systems group, when he came in and explained you know, this tremendous drop in profitability, and we stand back and we say, hold it a second, the industry still operates, there's still only three competitors globally, so this big delta in the profitability is something that we can really sink our teeth into and try to, I call it diagnostics, you know, diagnose the, the disease, so to speak, uh, and come out to the other end. There's lots of things we pass on. After the two-week review, we pass on about 70% of the first quintile. And the reason is there's many things we can't figure out. One of my favorite today is, uh, you know, if, if you said you used to buy all your goods uh, from a pretty uh, store where they had pretty shelves and you walked in and it was really big, uh, and then you told me that all of a sudden the sales are declining at a high single-digit rate because people are ordering their goods at home, I can pretty much say we're not going to figure out that there's ever a rebound in physical retail. So, so we don't have to run those things down. Uh, another good example of non-analyzable would be something where the business has existed for a relatively short time. It might be a hot uh, product. It might be hot fashion or something like that. And we realized it was just a fad and you're on your way out, we'll never figure out whether the fad's coming back. This is completely different. This is, as Dan mentioned, is a bunch of franchises of installed base of equipment where you make most of your money on the stream of 
maintenance and service revenues. So uh, this is right down our fairway in terms of figuring stuff out. And, and that, that was one of the really interesting parts of this project was ultimately we're trying to handicap whether this business could recover, but the first stage of this process was we couldn't believe what we were seeing in the numbers given the way that the business should operate. So they, this company has this giant install base of equipment, we had some vague understanding before we'd done our deep dive research into how the business operated that this should be there should be some stable profit pool there and you couldn't see it in the income statement. So that was the first step of this process was first diagnose how is it possible that it could actually be this bad given how we thought that business had worked. So really that was step one was doing some detailed analysis, speaking to as many people as we could in the industry. That, that was both customers, competitors, former employees who run the business previously when it was profitable, and understanding the details around how the business operated and trying to just first diagnose how did it decline this much before we could have a view as far as where it could recover to. Dan, can I pick up on one point you made there? You know, one of the things that, that I feel pretty good about in terms of our ability to deliver insightful research uh, in, in our business is we've become global, as, as Valerie mentioned initially. And one of the interesting things, there's only three global competitors uh, in the space. One is uh, in Germany and one is in Japan. And the good news is because we are global investors, uh, Dan mentioned talking to competitors, suppliers, uh, you know, customers, the reality is we could talk to each of the competitors. Uh, you know, it didn't used to be that way when we started up uh, years and years ago. It was tough to get on the phone with Siemens uh, for us or Mitsubishi Heavy. Uh, now we had the capability to even go visit Mitsubishi Heavy, you know, on one of our Japan trips uh, and get their frame. Uh, I just want to throw in, Dan, you know, that was one of the more interesting visits because they were, I want to say, dancing on the grave of GE because their profit had always been lower than GE's, profit margin, that is. And so they were generally kind of like, oh, what are they doing over there? Uh, but when we raised the prospect of actually losing money, they just kind of had this befuddled look like we actually don't know how you lose money uh, in the service and maintenance stream. Uh, so it was kind of a fascinating uh, point to be able to talk to competitors. I just wanted to throw that in. So Dan, tell us more about the conclusions you came to um, at the end of your research process. Sure. So what, what we learned from doing the research on the power business was there were multiple issues, multiple variables that had all gone wrong at the same time that resulted in the type of earnings that we were that we were seeing. So first of all, as I mentioned, GE did a large acquisition of, of Alstom prior to a collapse in demand for their marquee product. So they increased their capacity right before demand collapsed. The basic economics would tell you that has negative implication for pricing for new equipment. And we did a lot of research on the service business. We realized there were some self-inflicted wounds there, but we thought that's a franchise that, if managed well, should be sustainable and generate materially higher profits than the aggregate segment was generating for years into the future. And really what was happening was there was this profit stream was being masked by a series of negative issues that were all hitting at once. So on the new equipment installations, the way that this business works is these projects tend to be long-tailed projects. So a, a power plant infrastructure project can be constructed over several years. Oftentimes the manufacturer will quote a fixed price and then has to deliver against that. So in this period where demand was declining and GE had increased its capacity, they were agreeing to contracts of long-term 
construction projects that had very, very unfavorable terms. So you basically had a profit stream on the services side that was not optimized, but was still positive, and that was being masked by dramatic losses in new equipment installations and and some liabilities they had uh, assumed from Alstom in, in, in conjunction with, uh, with with a lot of these projects. Uh, so so we, we spent a lot of our time really trying to segment the business and understand what the size of these different profit pools were today, what they were historically, and then what we thought they ultimately could be over the long term. Yeah, Dan, you, you, you said it exactly right. You know, when we look at uh, a business, we try to model it the way it works not the way it's reported. And they just had this lump of dough segment called Power Systems. And what you had to do was go in and take out the front end, the big installation, and separate that from the gem of the business, which is really that long trail of services contracts where they have attractive gross margins on parts uh, and, and the service part. Uh, but why don't you go into how they blew that part up? Because that, that, that's another part of the, the story I find fascinating. So th this is a pretty interesting governance issue, actually. And what happened was the way that the company accounts for a lot of their service business, they have long-tailed service agreements with, with their customers. Oftentimes, they can be 15 to 20 years in nature. There's some management discretion in how you estimate the long-term profitability of these, of these service agreements for gap accounting purposes. And that doesn't always match up with the cash flow in any given period. So what we learned was during this period where demand was collapsing and the segment started to underperform, the company had publicly stated a $2 EPS target very famously. So this was this was the, the 2015 bridge where Jeff Immel laid out for all of Wall Street how they're going to get from their current earnings stream to $2 in, in, in EPS. And Wall Street started valuing the company as if they'd already achieved it. So there was enormous pressure to try to deliver on those targets. And one of the levers available to you to produce gap earnings would be to deliver equipment to your customers where you're not necessarily collecting cash from it. So it's not a great cash flow or economic deal up front but it allows you to alter the service agreements to produce gap earnings. So we would argue that's poor governance, that you're managing a business to hit an external earnings target as opposed to managing for optimized cash flow. But what was interesting about it, if I, if I add up all of the issues going on in power, is these were severe problems and you could you could look at the problems on an abstract basis and say why would you want to invest in a business that's that has issues like this poor governance that has material negative margins on on new equipment they've agreed to contracts with with liabilities that are going to drag on the company potentially for multiple years and the point that i would make is you have to look at a couple factors one is what's currently in the numbers today so a lot of this was reflected already in the income statement at the time that we were building our position. And then number two, it's the valuation relative to the normal earnings stream. So what was really exciting to us about this investment is a lot of these issues, while, while they are severe, are things that over time should slowly come out of the income statement. And when you value the residual profit pool after they get past some of the government's issues and some of the economic issues of, of mispricing a lot of the, the deals that they had done, the stock looked quite cheap to us. So that's, that's what, what got us so excited. I know at Pizzino we are focused on downside protection in our investments. Can you outline the downside protection here? It's pretty simple in this case, actually. The, the downside protection is really just the valuation. And what, what I mean by that is when we initially completed our research, 
we didn't just contemplate the scenario of the business fixing itself the way that we thought it would. We also contemplated what if issues go wrong. So there were, you know, as I mentioned, the two big issues were the, the power segment and the balance sheet. The balance sheet, we haven't discussed it as much yet today, but the balance sheet concern was that there were a lot of liabilities that, that either hadn't yet formed themselves into the financial statements. So so potential liabilities from fines uh, with the SEC or DOJ, um, the long-term care liability, which had already dramatically increased that could continue increasing over time. Um, so there, there was that fear coupled with risk that the business doesn't actually recover. So we also ran a series of other scenarios looking at reasonable downside cases where the margins don't recover and the liabilities do increase. And what we determined was the stock was already priced for that. So when we finished doing our research, the shares were trading around $12. And we thought $12 was a pretty good estimate of if everything goes wrong, this is what the fair value of, of, of GE would be. Um, so that's the other part of this that got us excited was we felt like we understood what the problems were that were in the current financials and believe that eventually that they would be removed. And we thought we were paying a price as if they wouldn't. So the risk reward just looked extremely attractive to us. Yeah, Dan, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because we know that after we, after you did the research and you know, just spooling people forward on this, uh, out came this Markopoulos report, which was someone, you know, saying, by, by the way, working with a hedge fund who was short the stock, uh, saying that the liability side was kind of a, a sinkhole of, of infinite proportion uh, is kind of his intimation because he starts the report by saying GE is a bigger fraud than WorldCom and Enron combined. Uh, so that was a shock to the market. Uh, what's interesting is because we're looking at all the aspects of a business, including the long-term care book, fortunately we work in the insurance area, so we have ways of thinking about insurance and the range of outcomes for these type of liabilities. So we had already done that work. Uh, and I just wanted to throw that in because uh, people were concerned about the unlimited nature of that book. Now, they'd already written the reserves up twice. So it wasn't as if GE was ignoring that this was a liability that needed to be resized. We had just deemed that it had already been, to your point, already been resized. Uh, so, so the Markopoulos report scared people additionally. And I just wanted to throw in there that what's interesting about that is if you've already done the work, and the stock shows additional downside, uh, that is an opportunity for us to add when we already understand what bad looks like. I often say we measure bad. Uh, so, so Dan, you know, you might just highlight how Mark Markopoulos cherry-picked uh, the insurance data just to help our, our uh, investors understand that. Right. So, so the claim in the Markopoulos report, the scariest part of his fraud claim was that GE was knowingly mismarking their, the size of their long-term care insurance liability. And the data that he used to support that was he looked at individual insurance subsidiaries and looked at where they had their liabilities marked for regulatory purposes relative to where GE had their liability marked. And he used two examples that both on the surface would imply that that GEs were, were mismarked. So they looked at the size of the liability relative to the number of policies that they had insured. Now, what's interesting is uh, if you were to do a broad-based comparison, you would you could find pretty easily somewhere around 200 specific subsidiaries that have this type of exposure. The two that he picked were the 100, uh, the 199th and 200th 
largest. So the only two subsidiaries on Earth that had higher marks than the GE subsidiary were the two that he chose to draw the conclusion that GE has mismarked their book knowingly. And the other part of his claim was that not only that they mismarked it, that the difference between where they had marked it and where they should have marked it based on this benchmarking was a cash outflow that was going to come due imminently. Now, we had spent time not just thinking about the size of the liability, but also understanding the mechanics of how the business worked. And we realized that that was a nonsensical claim because when they did take the large the large mark on the insurance book originally, when they took their original charge for statutory purposes, they had agreed to contribute $15 billion into that subsidiary over a period of seven years. So in a scenario where that liability does grow over time, which is possible because it's very hard to estimate these liabilities and, and you know, we're not actuarial experts, nobody on earth can estimate it with perfect uh, visibility, um, but the mechanics of how that would play out is there would be incremental additional cash contributions over a number of years to satisfy this very long-tailed liability. So I think really the value that we were able to add was not that not just that we had already done the benchmarking analysis on our own and, and thought about this in the framework that he was trying to present, but that we understood the mechanics of the business well enough to know that the conclusions he was trying to draw to create fear in the market didn't make any sense. And that, again, created another opportunity for us to, to add to the stock at this point below what we thought is a reasonable downside case scenario. I think one of the ways he scared the market and actually created an opportunity for an additional buy for us was he basically made the long-term care insurance book, the what, what, legacy GE Capital, uh, make it sound like an infinite sinkhole uh, in proportion to the total company. Uh, why don't you walk us through how we proportioned uh, the sinkhole there in, in GE Capital. Uh, you know, the reality for our business is we have to uh, size things, and this is a case where we know we don't know the future, but we can kind of range test uh, the future. Why don't you walk us through the numbers on that? Sure. So, so based on how we value the GE Industrial Portfolio, we think the fair value of the market cap should be somewhere around $180 billion. After the Markopolis report came out, and there was fear around the around the size of the long-term care liability, the stock was trading below $75 billion in market cap. So more than a $100 billion valuation cushion between what we think and what the market price was reflecting based on the size of this liability. When GE, at the end of 2017, took the big charge to write up the insurance liability and more than doubled the size of where it had been marked, they agreed to contribute $15 billion over seven years. That was the largest write-up of a liability of that of that magnitude that we'd ever seen in history. So in order to discount the stock by over $100 billion, you would need to see that historic type of write-up happen again multiple times again into the future, which was dramatically higher even than the bare, bearish interpretation that Markopoulos was presenting. So that goes back to the two points. One, we felt that we understood the business well enough to know that his claims weren't correct. And even if they were, it was already more than discounted in the stock price. Dan, tell us a little bit about how you've interacted with management throughout the process and how you evaluate management. So our, our research process is very structured. We typically will, as as we mentioned, we'll perform an initial, initial review where we'll try to identify the issues. And then as part of our deep dive 
final review process, we'll generally go and visit with the management team um, before making an investment decision. In, in this case, as we identified, the power business was the biggest fundamental problem that the company was experiencing. So we went down to Atlanta, the headquarters of the, the power segment, and went with, met, met with the management team in that business to understand their diagnosis of, of what had gone wrong and try to understand the plan for how they could fix the business. After we've made the investment, we, we regularly interact with the management teams for portfolio companies. Uh, in, in this case, we've, we've flown to Boston to meet with the new CEO of, of GE, and we, we do speak with the management team uh, generally quarterly to ma make sure we understand how, how the turnaround plan is progressing. Dan, let me just, let me just add, you know, when we think about uh, understanding businesses, we do want to know that we have a real fact base to the understanding. One of the ways we do that is we triangulate our research with management intention. Uh, one of the things that appealed to me about this particular case is when we went to the governance level all the way to the top to the CEO and we were, we were discussing the future with, with uh, Larry Culp, uh, it was interesting because his transparency was high. I just want to mention to people that when we visited uh, both Enron uh, and WorldCom in, in their declines, uh, that in both cases, uh, the obfuscation was palpable. In other words, before uh, these companies actually succumbed to the frauds that they were, uh, the management was obfuscating the facts. When we met with Larry, uh, I can just say on, on behalf of all the investors uh, in GE today that his transparency was really high and we were able to discuss our view of issues in a very transparent, open way. This is what we would call good governance. And clearly they're on the journey to the recovery uh, in their underlying businesses in terms of their plans already when we were getting involved. And one, one interesting point around governance is I've, I've mentioned how some governance issues historically have resulted in the current problems that GE is facing. So in particular, identifying and valuing the long-term care liability and some of the business decisions that were made in the power segment that have caused the, the current pain. It's also important to think about governance as a variable that can improve and creates the valuation opportunity. So what we're really excited about with GE is you've had problems arisen that are now very well understood and we would argue overvalued in the current stock price, but a serious commitment by the company to improve some of the historical governance issues to try to address these problems. So I can think of a couple examples of that, but one very palpable one is in the insurance business where they've changed over leadership. They've brought in a lot of outside, very credible, very experienced people to take a look at these insurance liabilities and figure out how to optimize the management of that business. So we would argue that the fear around the insurance liability is very extreme, but the actual governance, which maybe was lacking historically, is going to be dramatically better than history. So that creates a real opportunity for us to, to take advantage of the good governance at a price where you're suffering from the prior bad governance. John, um, you know, you've told us a lot about the research process. How does that culminate into um, a decision in terms of investment, and how do you think about position sizing? Yeah, good question, Valerie. Uh, we, we do uh, pride ourselves on trying to get to the bottom of the facts of the situation, which Dan is talked a lot about. So what will happen is we'll have a final research review prior to investment where Dan comes in uh, with his case uh, and, and we discuss 
you know, our view of the range of outcomes for the business. Uh, what we do at that stage is the PMs, the portfolio managers on the products, in this case both global and, and U.S. large cap, would be in the room to kind of hear the final assessment of this range of outcomes and the quality of the investment opportunity, uh, including the governance uh, aspects which, which, which we're talking about here. Uh, so what we do is at, at, at the conclusion of this final review, based on the risks that we see in the business, based on the complementary nature of, of, of the business to what we already own in the portfolio, will either size this as a very small position or a very large position. Dan, why don't you walk us through some of the uncertainties that we knew about you know, at that moment. It's a, one of the big risks that we discussed before we made the investment was we knew that there were some problematic construction projects currently in the income statement, particularly in the power business. So we we identified the fact that there was this, this backlog of some potential liabilities that was very hard to estimate externally, but it was even hard for GE to estimate themselves. And we didn't have necessarily a differentiated view on exactly what the size of that would be and when it would come out of the income statement. We felt very confident that eventually it would and that this was creating the investment opportunity, but we weren't sure around the timing and, and short-term scale of that. In this case, we knew we had a valuation that was very attractive. We knew we had downside protection. And interestingly, when you think about it, mostly self-inflicted wounds that had no bearing to other industrials uh, in the portfolio. Uh, so we knew at, at conclusion of this that we'd be on a journey to a, a large position and we had unanimous consent amongst the portfolio managers and Dan, who I like to say knew more than the rest of us combined probably uh, about the business. Dan's in the room and we're discussing these realities uh, of what we should size it in, in the portfolio. So it's a unanimous decision. The journey starts though not with immediately implementing a 3% buy uh, in the portfolio. It starts with you know a smaller buy because we basically want to cost average in a bit, which is, is kind of beneficial because the Markopoulos report uh, came out, we're able to even add more to the position at the timing of the Markopoulos report. So it's generally a unanimous viewpoint of how we move forward uh, in, into the stock. If there is a controversy or a holdout, if I happen to say I just don't like GE or I'm scared of GE, I'd have to have a reason and then we could investigate that reason for my opposition. So it's not a case where we say I just don't feel like buying this or I'm just afraid. We have to get to the facts and that's what we did in this case and therefore we're able to establish a large position. Dan, how do you get comfort when the company is under investigation by the DOJ and SEC? So there's two points around the, the DOJ and SEC investigations. The first one is history would suggest that if there are fines that eventually come out of some of these investigations, they're much more likely to be incremental rather than existential. So one example you could point to is Tyco, which was industrial conglomerate that, that had major accounting issues, the, the size of the fines they ended up paying for that are a tiny fraction of GE's current market cap. So we view, we view the actual financial risk there as, as kind of a non-event. The real risk I think the market's worried about is whether GE is still today not properly marking some of the, the liabilities, in particular long-term care insurance, which is one of the key areas that, that they're being investigated. What, what, what I'll say is the current CEO, who's new to the company, 
was highly successful in his prior role, signs these financial statements, and the the chair of the audit committee of GE was the former head of FASB, also new to the GE board. So you have new credible leaders with sterling reputations from their prior experience who are signing financial statements while the SEC and DOJ are investigating whether they're currently mismarking those liabilities. Now, I can't ever say that the odds of something are zero, but the odds that Larry Culp is knowingly mismarking these liabilities while he's being investigated for it and basically knowingly sending himself to jail are extremely low. And if that scenario is something that happens, then that's a scenario where we're just going to have to say we were wrong on this investment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, Dad, Dad, you raise an excellent point. Are we wrong on in our investments? And yes, uh, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know the future. Uh, but I think the way you've positioned it uh, is right in the sense that what we do is we measure what a bad outcome looks like. And as long as we're paying uh, a valuation that reflects the worst outcome that we could uh, come up with, we're in good shape in terms of, of hoping uh, for a double in GE. Any final thoughts? Uh, I did, did just want to add that you know this is really the key to the process, which is we don't have a crystal ball, but at the end of our research, we systematically pay for a negative outcome, and therefore the outcome we hope for, which we call the normal outcome or what should happen, uh, is, is big upside uh, in the stock. And I think GE is a good illustration uh, of that in the types of portfolio positions we establish around the world. Thank you, John and Dan, for explaining our investment in GE. I think it's a great example of the in-depth research we do at Pazina. And thank you, everyone, for listening in to the GE podcast. We welcome any follow-up questions that you have, so please reach out to us. You can find our information on the contact page on our website. We look forward to hearing from you soon.